can't think of any more human activity than conducting science experiments. The game I play is a very interesting one. It's imagination in a tight straitjacket. The beauty of a living thing is not the atoms that go into it, but the way those atoms are put together. What I always think should be the basis of education is not answers, but questions. We should teach kids how to question. Welcome to Blabcoats. My name is Hamid Siviki. Today on the podcast, I had Dr. Julian... Um, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. I should have probably gotten him to pronounce it. Um, it's got an X in there and it's tripping me up. So, um, uh, sorry, Julian. Nonetheless, Julian was a great guest. Uh, we spoke about uh, a bunch of different things from his research into altitude training. So, um, uh, his research was actually uh, one of the first uh, in the world that... Um, looked at how altitude training could be utilized by athletes to improve their conditioning and, and their endurance and their performance. So it was, uh, it's pretty fascinating. And then uh, we, we talked about doping. We uh, talked about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, surprisingly, which was really cool. Um, a bunch of other stuff, uh, even fatherhood. So that was pretty cool. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation, and I think you guys will too. Um, but don't forget to also like our Facebook page and rate and review us, please. Uh, that's really important if you could do that. Um, it would help us a lot, and uh, that would be great. Nonetheless, oh, I should say without further ado, my interview with Julian. So I, I saw you at the three-minute thesis, and you won that competition. Yes. And I, I thought your research was very fascinating. Um, but before we get into that, as you said, let's go into the journey. Um, something I'm very curious about is how do scientists get into science? You know, what motivates them? Um, what is the initial spark that creates the, f- the flame that many researchers have and, and that gets them interested in pursuing what they're doing? So what is that spark for you? I think it was just curiosity. Um, somebody who gets bored quite quickly mm-hmm. so having a job which is uh, which is not as repetitive as, as some others maybe uh, was definitely the defining factor for me mm-hmm. so when I started um, I predestined myself to be a, a school teacher literally I, I was I wanted to be a PE teacher physical education but very quickly I just thought oh, there's no way I'm gonna survive doing the same job every year 20 hours a week cause that's what we do in France for the next 40 years and Somebody just switched me on like that in the lab. We did some research and there was PhD students being doing casual hours the same way as you guys are doing. And I just, just got completely hooked up straight away. And then I gave up very quickly the pathway to become a teacher, teacher. and thought I would try my luck with research. So did this happen in, in like high school or was this in more at university? No, that was already at uh, university level. Uh, when I was in high school, I probably wanted to be a soccer player. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. oh, I, French, I to, of course. I used to be half decent <laughs> back uh, in the day. Nice. But uh, yeah, I no, went to, into sports science. And, uh, and then it was a very different format to the BSc masters and PhD that we have at the minute. Mm-hmm. But roughly during my BSc, that's when I got introduced to, re- to research. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then um, from there, yeah, literally during your lab, in one of my units, we started to, to do some testing and things. And I saw that was interesting. 
and I decided I actually stayed for an extra year towards the teaching path because that was that was not closing any doors, so I could still keep my options open. Uh-huh. But then after that year, it was the last row, and I said, "Now screw that," and <laughs> I went for research. And as they say, I haven't looked back since that, and mm-hmm. the rest is history. That's such a um, so going from being wanting to become a PhD like a PE teacher yep. to becoming a scientist that's such a like it's those are two different completely different worlds completely yeah what exactly like what did you do you just run an experiment and then they hit you I'm like oh wow science is the shit I have to do this like how did it happen Th- that was very much like that yeah, we, had, we had practicals in the lab and again the casual staff were, were here to help us and we were devising some small research projects really something basic just to test physical fitness from people and I thought oh, that's pretty cool that's a nice thing to do and, and yeah that's it I thought yeah, I'd like to do more of that oh. you know we're all the same we, we want to have fun a little bit so right yes it's probably less fun now than it used to be, more responsibility. But <laughs> <laughs> at least the research part is still uh, still very exciting, for okay. sure. So uh, after that, so you had that realization, you still kept your doors open for teaching. When did you close that door and really set into research? Literally, that would be the equivalent of, uh, of the end of the BSc. So at the time, it was a two-year plus a one-year degree. So at the end of the third year, which is, again, the BSc, that's when you had to decide whether, because in France it's a, it's a separate exam, so you have to sit a national exam that every single student in France sit on the same day, and etc. And then it's a numerous clauses, you have a number of spots every year. And I thought, now, don't not interested in preparing for that exam. And I went into uh, the first year of an MSc, which was literally, it was still a bit opened, but it was training and management of sport. And then from there, it was again a one-year degree. Then I did, I moved, I changed university, went to Paris to do a proper master's focused just on research. Mm. And I started to, I actually contacted the lab I wanted to work with on a project I wanted to work with in that new, new university, new city and everything, and started to work on that for my MSc and then carried on as a PhD student. Mm. So what, um, backtracking, so uh, the MSc is the Masters of Science? It was actually in sports science. We had a that, that would be a master of science here, the equivalent, but that was a dedicated one in sports science. Yeah. Okay. And and then when you moved to Paris over there, you had an idea of what project you wanted to do. Yes. And um, what was that? Uh, so the project was I, I used to be quite interested in uh, in mountaineering, and, and I still am. And really, that project was on high altitude training. So anything to do with that. And the, the person I got in touch with, Professor Richalet, is was a big name back in the day in terms of high altitude research. Uh-huh. And again, you know, thinking, oh, I like climbing mountains. Yeah, well, why not try to make a living out of it? I was probably a bit naive to think I would make a living out of climbing mountains. Yeah. <laughs> but I really wanted to join both. And that's how I got in touch with him. And he said, I have that big project, which is partly funded by the French government of sport and the International Olympic Committee to assess high altitude training. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about uh, early 2000, uh-huh. uh, 2002 when I started the PhD. And that was at the time where they were, oops, sorry about that, where yeah, they cool. were run, uh, wondering what to do with high altitude. Mm-hmm. Should they consider that as doping and ban it or should they allow it? Uh-huh. And the other question was, is it safe for athletes to use? Because you know what it's like when people are trying something out, they just go crazy. Oh yeah. And Especially they try everything and anything. Yep. And you really, really try to try to push the boundaries. Yep. And putting themselves at risk. So that was one of the question was really is it safe? And the other one, is it efficient? And if yes, should we consider banning it because it could be considered as uh, as doping practices? 
so they were thinking that high altitude training because it may have been so effective they said we can't let our athletes do it yep even if it was possibly completely safe yep we, how does that make sense I don't, I don't get the logic behind that i i think the the problem is most people are actually using artificial altitude so you basically built a room like this office but uh -huh. it's sealed and you have a pump which is changing the percentage of oxygen in the room to simulate altitude and some people started to think that it is not kind of a natural process of training uh -huh. and that's why it should be considered as doping then the argument is first how far do you go is training doping if right. you start to resonate like that you know if i have a better training protocol than yours am i getting something some illegal advantage and the second thing is, how about all those who are born and bred at high altitude? <laughs> they can't do anything. Yeah. You know, if you talk about all the, think about all the countries in Africa, Ethiopia, Kenya, or all the South American countries, Bolivia, what do you do with these? Do you kick them out of the Olympics <laughs> because they, they have an unfair advantage? Right. So th that's the reason why it never made it to the list. Yeah. But nonetheless, people ask the question thinking, eh, what shall we do with that? Yeah. I think it was mainly trying to regulate the use of it. Okay. It's, it's just fascinating because I follow uh, mixed martial arts very closely and doping is, is a big issue for mm -hmm. them as well. And recently they had to, um, they brought in an uh, independent body to make sure they drug test everyone. But to your point, I mean, what is considered doping? <laughs> like supplements? Like can you, what if you eat certain types of food that other people don't have access to what about your genes are you not yeah some people naturally produce more testosterone so are you naturally doping <laughs> you know like that's tricky that, that's a difficult debate and that's why actually they, they go more and more towards this biological passport where instead of focusing on the one-off drug test they tend to follow people up over the years uh, so that they have an idea of the trend uh, of different physiological parameters and again, the one that I was close to was the amount of red blood cell and hemoglobin. And there's been some people who actually managed to demonstrate that they naturally produce more than others. And it's just the way they are. I mean, they, with the last, uh, um, what was it, the, the athletics in London, they, they literally just finished the, the world uh, championships last week. There's always a debate with that uh, African athlete. I can't remember exactly which can South Africa, South Africa, I think, um, Semaya. She's, uh, she's a, a female athlete, obviously, but she's producing too many, she has too much uh, testosterone. So she looks very, ma very masculine mm. and she tends to kick everybody's butt yeah. because <laughs> of that. And some people have been trying for years to actually exclude her, saying uh. that she has an unfair advantage. Well, she, she's naturally the way she is, yeah. she just as too much testosterone and, and that's it and there is no real ground to do that but yet some people are saying that's unfair yeah doesn't she have like testes in front of, instead of ovaries that produce testosterone that's something i heard i i, I don't know exactly yeah. where it's coming from but uh when you when you see her she has a very masculine physique for sure yeah, yeah she's kicking everyone's ass yeah yeah <laughs> but she the thing is she's not the only one being like that and you know then do you want to uh, i don't know if you're very tall and you are getting an unfair advantage in high jumping shall you be banned you know do you want to start to be the same as modeling where you need to be taller than that height but shorter than this height and don't weigh more than that where do you stop yeah you know, <laughs> that's yeah that's a slip it's like a piece of string exactly yeah it's hard to draw that line so um so they they wanted to investigate the effects of uh high altitude training um so uh, 
tell me about your research project and what you did and, and what you found. Yeah. So the actual project was literally what we did is we had three studies which were on three different populations. So one was with uh, Nordic skiers, another one was with swimmers, and the third population was uh, middle distance runners. Mm -hmm. And we submitted them to different protocols of a specific model of altitude training, which is called living high training law, and studied the effect and the inocuity, the safety of that model. So where that model is coming from is basically from the fact that Traditionally, it all started back in the day in, before the Olympics in uh, Mexico in 1968 because Mexico is at high altitude. Mm. So people started to think about, about that and see how you could improve performance. And as a matter of fact, actually, they realized that all the sprinting and jumping uh, events got world record broken, while all the endurance events got absolutely dreadful results. And that really kick-started a lot of the research in terms of high altitude performance and what uh, so the implication was the higher altitude uh helps not with the endurance aspect but the the, the first example that you yeah the shorter distances so, so it's sprinting thinner air is helping with running faster and jumping longer oh. but the lack of oxygen inverted commas is actually detrimental to aerobic performance oh wow okay because you simply put, you take less oxygen on board, therefore you deliver less to the muscles and they can't work to the maximum capacity, right. which is why performance is affected. Mm. And then people start to think about how ways to improve that. Right. And, uh, and just sorry, to, sorry, just to add, so also if, if you have quote unquote low oxygen levels and your body is used to sprinting, then it gets um, good at using those low oxygen levels and actually upregulating biochemical pathways that would be involved in, in like uh, anaerobic. Yeah, the, the main would, would thing is anaer the anaerobic metabolism for sprinting doesn't require oxygen. Right. So it doesn't matter if you don't get much. The recovery is a bit harder because that's mm. when you need the oxygen to replenish the stores of ATP. But really during the event, you know, when you have 100 meters over 10 seconds, you don't need oxygen need for oxygen, that. Yeah, that's so they, that's why they were fine. Mm. And uh, yeah, then fast forwarding a little bit, uh, early 90s, uh, a guy from Texas, Ben Levin, started to think that you could actually mix them both. Because the problem with high altitude is you can't train the same way as you train at sea level. So then if you maintain the same amount of training, you, risk, you, you run the risk of being overtrained. Mm. But if you decrease the charges of a training by how much you need to decrease them, so you may detrain. So what he came up with is you live at high altitude so that you benefit from that. You stimulate the system to produce more red blood cells, ah. but you train at sea level to keep the same training, hence the living high training low model. And that was that was the hype. It still is the, the hype with the athletes. It seems to be the most efficient yeah. way. And we were the first ones really to demonstrate in high-end athletes because we had Olympic type of standards and World, World Cup, World Championship standard athletes. So we were the first ones to demonstrate that in, even in top-class athletes, it actually does work. Some others have discussed that n more recently. Yeah. It seems like there are some conditions that you need, really need to meet for it to work, but right. that, was a, that was a bit of a breakthrough in the field back in the day. That is fascinating because um, I've heard this debate um, and again, my love for the UFC, <laughs> they, they, um, they talk about... Um, sorry, let me just 
yeah so in the ufc i've heard i've heard athletes just use exactly that program where they train really intensely at at sea level and then they go um uh, they go back at at altitude where they they or they even have those hyperbaric chambers Mm -hmm. i think where they they sleep at um at at a lower concentration of of hydrogen so it stimulates that red blood cell production that is a pretty cool finding i mean it's very broadly used. We we worked. Uh, we actually worked with a boxer Nathan Cleverly mm-hmm. uh, when I was working in the UK in Wales uh, for his first bid for a world belt. Uh, we did some work with other Olympians as well who competed in the 2012 London Olympics. And what most of them are doing, as you were saying, basically set up a tent in their house and they sleep in the tent. Mm. So you're at home and you have the your husband or wife sleeping in the bedroom and you're, you're camping <laughs> you're camping in the spare bed, really. Yeah. But what they've done is they've banned the use of these tents on in the, the Olympic Village. So you're not allowed ah. to bring your equipment on site anymore. Ah. Some people are getting around it by not sleeping in the village. <laughs> but you're technically not allowed during the duration of the events. Yeah. We actually had that uh, in London, they did that. Uh, when I worked in, because after my PhD in France, I actually moved to Canada, and that was before the Vancouver Olympics, and they actually b- built some dedicated full apartments so that people could live normally and not be restricted to a small tent in the city to, for them to train for two or three years before the, oh. before the actual Olympics in Vancouver, the Winter Olympics. Wow. It, it is it, it is crazy it's fascinating when you think about it because it's a real market there's, there's just so much money in the sport at the minute that you know people are really ready to invest heavily to give their athletes the edge because you know it's uh, the name of the country and etc hmm. so and i also i feel like athletes are like sports cars like many of the advancement in sports cars have led or come into what commercial cars like ABS, all these cool features that we have, we get from sports cars, companies doing research and pushing uh, their research in that way. And I feel like athletes are pretty much the same thing. Mm. So all the, all the research that's been done to give them that, you know, one, 2% advantage, which is huge at the top level, right? Yep. Trickles down to us ordinary people and we learn, oh, we can do all this stuff to optimize our own training and our own health. Definitely. I mean, that's what brought me towards uh, the more clinical research. As you, exactly as you said, how it trickles down. And now you start to have people actually suggesting that you could use hypoxia as a way to treat obesity. Really? So it's hypoxia, the, the lack of so oxygen. The lack of oxygen, yeah, high altitude. So literally, if you're obese, may, some are arguing that you may want to move probably out of Australia because we don't have high altitude here. <laughs> yeah. But somewhere, you actually don't need to be too high, but even cities like Denver, which is 1,600 uh, meters of altitude, or even a bit higher, could be potentially beneficial because of the alterations to your metabolism mm. when you live at high altitude. Right. It is very theoretical at the minute, but I've, the reason why I'm saying that is because I've actually reviewed a grant from a colleague for people in New Zealand who propose to do exactly that. That study, wow. This brings... Um this is my fa- one of my favorite comedians, Joe Rogan. He um, he moved to Colorado, and he was saying that just walking like at that alt- altitude felt like he ha- he was jogging at no- like it, it was so much more taxing on his mm-hmm. body. Um, so is that one of the reasons why you just you you use more energy? Um, or is is it that you use more energy, or you just get fatigued because your body is preventing you from using? all the all the energy you have mm, it, it really depends what type of activity you have uh, again 
the day-to-day -day life is mainly aerobic, so you require the oxygen. So if you drop the level of oxygen, it's definitely going to affect your your day-to-day -day life. Mm -hmm. But I think it's probably more on on the biochemical side where mm -hmm. the whole metabolism will be affected. But I'm thinking of which uh, some actually colleagues from. Uh, from Canberra, from the Australian Institute of Sport, mm -hmm. probably 20 years ago now published a paper that an altitude as low as 500 meters is enough to affect performance in high-end athletes. Wow. So you know, when we think about high altitude, we're thinking about high mountains, but you don't necessarily need to go very high to start to feel the effects. So your friend, your sorry, this actor who was talking about, uh, again, Colorado, I suppose Denver, which is usually where you land, yep. is only 1600 meters. Yeah. It's not very tall by any stretch of imagination, but yet it is. It can be sufficient to make people who are quite responsive feel the effects. Yeah, yeah. And apparently if you're pregnant, it's not good to be in high altitude. Uh, there's higher chances of miscarriage. There's been some studies. Yeah, These will be mainly on natives. So again, South America, Bolivia is a typical example, and or Peru, mm -hmm. uh, where yeah, the, uh, the miscarriages are more present and I think the babies are born smaller usually ah, they uh -huh. tend to catch up a little bit later on but uh, right. high altitude natives are an absolutely fascinating population why uh, because you have very different responses so if when you think about it we we obviously don't do well at high altitude because we're not used to it you know mm. we'll go on holidays and come back down and that's it well the people who are born and bred you would think that they're used to it and they've been there for generations but actually what the research is showing that is that you have a difference between South America and the Himalayas. The what, sorry? The Himalayas. So oh, where the Himalayas, yep. is. And the reason is the Andes are younger mountains than the Himalayas. So people have been exposed to high altitude for longer in Tibet mm. than they have been in South America. So we do poorly. The Tibetans do very well. And people in the Andes are somewhere in between. And some of, the, some of them are doing extremely well. Some others are doing extremely poorly. So it's an absolutely fascinating model from an evolutionary point of view mm. because of that. And those who are not doing too well, they develop what's called chronic mountain sickness, mm. which is actually a condition in which they overexpress EPO. So they produce too many red blood cells and they just can't switch it off, which means that they end up with very sick blood. And it's very much like yogurt. You're talking about a blood which is twice as sick as what we have. And obviously, there's throwing thrombosis and etc. And they just, they really don't do well. Wow. And that's dangerous because you could get like stroke. Yep. Yeah. I, I've heard of stories where um, in the Tour de France, like bikers literally in the middle of the night have to go on rides because they've taken such amounts of EPO that their blood is so thick that if they don't do that, supposedly they might have a stroke. Yes. It was... Uh, Mainly, I would say in the 90s, uh, now they've improved the techniques yeah. <laughs> and uh, they use a lot more transfusion. So you don't, because the problem with that is when your blood is too thick, the heart has to do a lot of work to make it pump. Again, it's the same as if you want to pump yogurt versus water. Mm. That's very much the analogy you can take. So literally, as you were saying, yeah, they had uh, the alarm with the heart rate monitor where if the heart rate drops too much, the alarm goes off, they jump on the bike, get the heart going, and then go back to bed. Oh, God. So now what they do instead is they do blood transfusion. So you, your blood is not sicker, but instead of having five liters, you will have six or seven liters in the system. So they get around that, uh, and it's your own blood, so it's harder to detect. Yeah, but they, they can detect, I heard, 
um, they detect the plastics in the IVs that uh, I know they banned that in the UFC. Yeah. Um, I was gonna say something. Uh, I was gonna say, yeah, your point about how athletes push things to the extreme. That's one of them. That's like, one of them. Definitely. That's yeah. so crazy. How much is too much? Yeah, that's wow. Here is a clue that is too much. Oh yeah, yeah. People, some people are crazy because they just want to be great. You know what's funny is that uh, um, I listened to uh, Lance Armstrong. He was on. He was on the Joe Rogan Experience, the three-hour podcast, and they were talking, and he's like, "Everyone's doing it. Everyone's like, he goes, you don't understand the mindset of an athlete. Like they're willing to do anything, anything and everything for a minute of glory." Yeah, yep. to to make it to the top. Yeah, it, uh, it is a difficult one, and and when you think about it again, you know, I might be a pessimist, but when everything blew up, I think that was in the Tour de France, nineteen ninety seven, with the Festina affair, where they said half of the the peloton is on EPO. They were racing at a certain speed. We are twenty years down the track. They're racing faster. And we're supposed to believe that everybody uh. is drinking clear water now. <laughs> yeah. That so, they, you know, are they cool. getting better at it? And they, don't get me wrong. Training has improved. There's probably more selection and et cetera. Yeah. But I think thinking that most of them are clear yeah. is probably <laughs> like, a bit, a bit naive. naive. Yeah, for sure. And when Lance Armstrong, when they stripped him of his titles, apparently the next natural person out of all the people that competed was like number 19 or number 20. <laughs> They pretty much all went down at some stage <laughs> in their career, yeah. Yeah. Either they they admitted afterwards when it was too late to, you know, when it was prescription for yeah. for, for them to lose the titles, or they they got caught at some stage. But yeah, the the top the top ranked are. Yeah. We can ask questions about them. Yeah. I'd say some of them. I'm still keen to believe that because it's a one event a year. You know, you you plan everything around these three weeks for the mm. Tour de France, for example. So I can believe that some of them could not take much, if anything, but those who are repeating the efforts many times, <laughs> you get to wonder. Really. Yeah. Again, I might be completely wrong, but yeah. Well, you know, in, in the UFC, what they're doing, and this is something I think you mentioned earlier, to look at trends, mm -hmm. they collect your urine for like years, and then they might not be able to detect compounds that you, you might be taking now because they just haven't built the, the kits, the assays for it. But let's say 10 years down the track, they might have a kit or an assay for that specific compound. Then they can come back and test your urine from now, which is like 10 years have passed. And then if they find that you've tested positive, they strip you yep. of it. Yeah, definitely. They've done that as well uh, in the Olympics. Uh, some of the Russian athletes have lost their titles from 2012, and that was in the last year or so. So again, in retrospect, exactly the same as you said, the technology has improved for detecting different compounds. And they went back and said, oh, yeah, you did it. <laughs> you did it. We, we caught you. <laughs> Got you. Yeah. So in France, did you, you said you did a master's of, of science. Yep. And you, did you also do your PhD I there? I did my PhD there as well, yeah. So I, again, uh, maybe a tip for future PhD, PhD students. What I did is I kind of, I made sure I was working on the same project during my master's and my PhD, uh -huh. which saved a bit of time. And actually, I have a friend who ended up doing his PhD in two years because of that. Really? Because he really did exactly the same thing between his master's and his PhD. So he had one study under his belt at the end of his master's. And then he did another one and a third one and did everything very quickly. So he started a year after me on the on, on different aspects of the same project. But we finished literally a month apart. Huh. He finished a month after me. 
wow. the top tip that yeah. can be a way to streamline your studies if you can ah. that is if as long as you go on with your supervisor yeah. your project and everything goes smoothly but yeah. i think it being strategic during your masters and trying to identify the right supervisor and potentially the right project can can save an awful lot of time that's interesting so i i have a a project that I've worked on in my masters and I've considered whether I should change and you know the, the part of the benefit of changing projects is that you go to a new environment you have new challenges mm-hmm. and you're forced to learn but the downside as you said is that you have to start from scratch and it takes ages yeah. to and something you spent two years already on you understand it pretty well and you can take it to the next level whereas if you start from scratch like it's gonna be really difficult. Uh, I guess there's no right or wrong answer. It's you know depending on what you're interested in and how you want to to do things. But I thought for me that worked quite well to be able to yeah save a bit of time, especially back in the day. I think things have changed now, and you can't really do a PhD if you don't have any uh, scholarship. Mm. But I didn't have any support, so for me I had to work. Oh, wow. And of course, you know, saving a year was <laughs> quite significant. Yeah. I, I had uh, at teaching hours the same same way as as you guys, and that was it. And then I was teaching in my parents. So, you know, if I could save my parents a year, they were <laughs> quite happy about that, really. <laughs> yeah. So that's what I made a point of uh, of trying to be as efficient as I could. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so in, in your master's um what I should ask, what did you what questions did you try to answer in your PhD that were different to your master's? Uh, they were actually very similar, just a, a much bigger scale. Mm-hmm. So in, in the master's, I focused really on the performance, while in the PhD, I expanded it onto the actual mechanism. So it was really, is the performance improved following that leaving high training low method? Mm-hmm. Yes or no? That was the master's. The PhD, I went into the mechanisms related essentially to oxygen carrying capacity. So all the red blood cells, EPO and etc. And I added as kind of an add-on this security safety aspect of it. So can you just elaborate a little bit on the mechanism? We'll get into the security aspect. The the mechanism, the idea is again, you go to high altitude to stimulate the production of red blood cells. So chronologically, when you go to high altitude, again, inverted commas, the lack of oxygen is making you breathe harder, which is a short-term response. A a much more efficient and long-term sustainable response is to produce new red blood cells. So it starts with the release of EPO, and if the stimulus is sustained for long enough, then you will end up with new red blood cells. If you have more red blood cells, obviously you can carry more oxygen. Mm -hmm. So when you go back down to sea level, where you have the normal level of oxygen, all these extra red blood cells that you've produced will be here to help you carry more oxygen, deliver more to the tissues, to the muscles, for that instance, and your performance is supposed to increase. And that's really the, the chain of events at the, that is behind it. Then the question is, how much altitude do you need? How high do you need to go? How many hours a day? How many days mm. a week? Or how many weeks? So that was the kind of questions that we tried to answer, try to to work out a dose of hypoxia, mm. as, as it's called, a dose of high altitude that you need for, for that method to work. Mm. And really the point of these three studies were to try different protocols. So the first one we didn't do too well in terms of performance. Mm. We actually targeted too high an altitude, which means that the athletes couldn't recover from their training sessions and they actually got fatigued. So the anecdotes, anecdotal results showed us that probably a month or two, all their physiological parameters were back down to normal, but they felt very good. They had very good sensations because they had finally recovered, 
but when we measure when we tested them at the end of the training protocol we didn't see any improvement okay, then the second one we thought okay we'll go for a, a lesser altitude so we went up to three and a half thousand meters for the first study we didn't exceed three thousand for the second one but we actually were limited with time so we had a shorter duration which means that the overall dose of hypoxia they received was less mm. again didn't show great results and the third one we finally nailed it so we limited the the high altitude to 3000 meters and had them for three weeks and they spent about 15 to 16 hours a day mm. in their room and we had tip-top results and really they were as you were saying the one two person that they are looking for to get the gold medal as a, as a group they definitely had that ah. achieved that and we were also interested in how long the effects would go on for so yeah. we studied them again two weeks after the end right and interestingly once you get the protocol right what we observed is some parameters start to go back down like the red blood cells are back down but your performance is actually still improved really and we, and we saw that it would be because you have almost kind of a potentiation of the training so when you go back because you have this extra boost your training sessions are that much more efficient and you benefit from that a bit further down the track even if all the physiological markers are back to normal at least that was that was the idea mm. that we we suggested for that so how would the efficiency improve uh, so what I mean by the efficiency is, is again, just the, the training sessions, you are able to push yourself a little bit harder. Okay, so they are able to train harder exactly. and, and keep themselves at a higher level. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. I thought maybe, yeah, because I thought technically they're probably doing the same thing. As in if they're yeah. trying to do a certain drill over and over again, but it's because they can do it better. And you recover a bit better because, again, you, you require the oxygen when you recover. So if you have more red blood cells, you deliver more oxygen to the tissues and you're supposed to recover better. Again, uh, it's never been really tested, yeah. but that was the theory that's behind it. That's the idea behind it. Um, that's fascinating. So you said you went to um, Canada. So after my PhD, that was, that was a great thing to have to be involved in that project but because it was a funded study by the IOC mainly and, and the government there was there was a deadline and no hope of getting more money to keep going in the same field mm -hmm. so all of a sudden I found myself with nothing to do <laughs> really <laughs> and um, what I did is actually uh, did some work for industry for six months uh, I got a contract with Polar which is a company designing watch so the same way as the smartwatches that we have now, they're actually still on the market with heart rate monitors and things. And they just designed a new one that they wanted to have a scientific validation for. So I got the contract to do that as a consultant. And in parallel, I applied for postdoc funding. And uh, again, through colleagues who were, uh, I would, should say friends probably, less formal, uh, friends who were working with me during the PhD, they got in touch with a guy in Canada during a conference another top tip speak to people in conferences yeah and the guy was basically saying we have a crap load of money in canada because the petrol was through the roof so in alberta where i went that loads of money and i'm looking for students so whoever you know who is interested and uh, just you know make sure that they get in touch with me so i contacted the guy we applied for a grant and i got it and six months later i moved to canada and as a matter of fact another uh, another two students we were working on other projects as part of the big study, ended up at some stage in exactly the same lab as me. Ah. One spent two years with me, and another one visited a couple of times here and there. So it, they really were 
you know, having enough, a fair bit of money for people to come and visit and etc. Right. So yeah, September, October, October 2006, I moved to, to Canada. To Canada. And did you know what, like what you were going to work on or did you just look at like dollar signs and said, this is where I need to be because I'm going to get some funding for whatever I want to do? Um, I kind of knew yes and no, because I, I got the money based on the project. So it was usually when you apply for a grant, it's the project itself, your CV mm -hmm. and the interaction between all the, the different parties. So mm. the supervisor, you, the lab, the project to see and etc. So we knew what I wanted to, uh, to work on and it was kind of an extension of, uh, of what I did. So as I was doing my PhD focused on EPO, red blood cell, oxygen transport, other guys actually discovered that EPO can stimulate ventilation. Ventilation? Yeah. So it mean? makes you breathe a bit harder. Okay. At least they did that in mice and they actually used the model of transgenic mice that are overexpressing EPO. So they did some very uh, basic science work, you know, benched up, where there are two lines of, uh, of mice. One is overexpressing EPO everywhere in their body. The other line is only overexpressing EPO in the brain. And the idea is you can tease out the central chemoreceptors that are responsible for the control of breathing from the peripheral chemoreceptors that are also responsible for that. And what they observed in the animals, at least, is that EPO can stimulate ventilation and again improve your acclimatization to a high altitude. So I wanted to expand that and see if that if we had the same effect in humans. And that was uh, the bulk of the project. But interestingly, the lab I went to had very little interest in the control of breathing. They were, it was really a, a vascular lab with a big interest on the brain. Mm. And I barely knew where the brain was at the time. <laughs> <you know? laughs> I, I really knew nothing about the field. So it, it was a massive learning curve when I arrived here, there to, to try to bend a little bit what I'm doing and, you know, getting up to scratch with the rest of the lab. But again, that was 2006, we're 2017, and that's what I've been doing for the last 10 years now. So, wow. so I, I, I guess I enjoyed it. Yeah. So you, you, you went to test um, uh, the effect of EPO on ventilation in humans. Yep. Uh, in that study, the, the mice study, or the rat study, so they, they uh, had transgenic mice, knockout mice. Yep. Um, you had one that was over-expressing, I should say, uh, of EPO in the periphery, so it, 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 everywhere, everywhere but the brain? No, everywhere. Everywhere? Yep. And the other condition was? Only in the brain. Uh, and what, was the, the, what, what would that elucidate? So the way we control breathing is via chemoreceptors. So these chemoreceptors are just sensing chemicals. And mm -hmm. for instance, they're sensing oxygen, CO2, and pH. Mm -hmm. The peripheral ones that are, I shouldn't show my heart, it's actually in the carotid bodies. Mm. They, sh they focus essentially on oxygen, but respond also to CO2 and pH. Mm. The ones in the brain only respond to CO2 and pH directly uh, pH more so than CO2 but both are linked mm. um, and really that allowed them to see how we respond by studying that they saw the effect directly on EPO and uh, the number of receptors EPO receptors that you will have and how that can stimulate ventilation ah that's fascinating okay Okay, yeah, I, this brings back memories from introduction to physiology <laughs> <laughs> about uh, in the, about your body being able to sense carbon dioxide as a means of uh, determining your breathing rate. And I think that's one of the reasons why um, 
when people have panic attacks, right? You, you they they use a bag so they can re inhale something that's called carbon dioxide. Now you're getting me interested. So that's yeah. exactly what I'm doing at the minute. So what happens is when you breathe out CO2, so when you have less CO2 in the body, your body responds by vasoconstricting. So you reduce the diameter of your arteries. Mm. And if you reduce the diameter of some arteries going up to your brain, you have less oxygen going to the brain, which is why when you hyperventilate, you tend to faint. So the idea of putting a bag on is you rebreathe CO2. So that mm. even if you're breathing hard, you're still bringing CO2 into the system. You don't vasoconstrict, you don't faint. Oh, that is that is the coolest shit I've learned. <laughs> I had no idea it was all about vasoconstriction, vasodilation. It's the amount of oxygen going to your brain. Oh, Julian, you blew my mind. <laughs> That's <laughs> the crazy. The brain's a funny organ because we obviously rely on oxygen, and it, but it doesn't cope well at all without oxygen. And actually, and to make things worse, you don't have any stores. So if you think, if you take a piece of muscle, of skeletal muscle, we can store oxygen through the myoglobin, which is the equivalent of hemoglobin in the muscles. So mm. you can you have some store and they can survive. The brain doesn't do well at all. So literally, within if you were to occlude the carotid arteries on both sides and shut down, within four to six seconds, you're off. Yeah. So that's as as little reserve as you have. So that means that if you don't supply constantly, sufficiently, you're screwed. Oh, wow. And same idea, when you stand up, you know, we've all had that, you stand up, you have that black curtain and you feel a bit dizzy. That's exactly the same thing. When you stand up, there is a, a blood pool right. towards your feet and then you have to fight against gravity <laughs> and tra very transiently, you don't receive enough oxygen and the response is, let's close everything down, let's faint for a second and then <laughs> things are going to get better. That seems so clunky. <laughs> Why would it be designed like that? I don't know. I'm not sure. Man, okay, that that connects a lot of dots in my head <laughs> when it comes to this stuff over here. And your 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 in terms of yeah, cutting out your blood supply for like three or four seconds, even some people even less because I do Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, mm -hmm. and so uh, a lot of the chokes are blood chokes. Yep. Uh, they're not air chokes, so you could breathe normally, but mm -hmm. within like two three seconds, you just go like it. Yep go black disappears yeah. and it's it's funny because i've been choked to sleep uh, many times, few times. <laughs> in bjj nowhere else um but it's it's interesting because it's like a, an elevator closing down like it's it's literally shutting and then you forget and then when you come back like your sense of consciousness disappears who you are where you are what you're doing everything disappears that's a mind trip yeah you actually did some work with BJJ. Oh, did you really? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> did you frame that? You set it up. <laughs> no, I had no idea. Please. So the, the idea is it started with boxing because you know, I'm sure you're aware of all the, the excitement about concussion at the minute. Oh, yeah, CT. Uh, and the idea is all the blows you receive in the head are obviously affecting the vasculature and sending you up for dementia in later life. And we demonstrated exactly that. We have a very neat paper about that. It's actually knocking off about 10 to 15 years of your life in terms of vascular aging. Wow. So if you take somebody who has never been concussed with, let's say, 40 years old, and somebody who is 40 years old but who has been boxing for years, that person, in terms of the state of the arteries, would be somebody 50, older. 55 or something. And similarly, physical activity can actually improve things by, the, by a good 15, 20 years as well. And we thought, oh, 
how about BJJ? Yeah. Before you get to yeah. that, so um, boxing involves physical activities. Can can that mitigate some of the? It does, but still, you're still at loss. So imagine when you stop boxing and you become very unfit. That's ah. a double whammy, which is why many boxers are ending up with early onset dementia. Oh yeah, and then yeah, no, that's true. And they get punched drunk and they can't talk. They forget everything. Yeah. Okay. Well, at least there's hope for us who don't people who don't box don't get punched on a daily basis. the head and exercise for God's sake. And, and actually, we try to work out uh, kind of an index because you know boxing is one thing, but you don't fight that often. But you train an awful lot. I was going to say that. So yeah, that's, uh, we actually work kind of a sparring index, and we try to ask the the boxers we we studied again whether you know how much training and how much sparring they were doing and that seems to be the biggest problem because mm. that's what comes in every day even if it's probably not to the same extent as a full-blown fight mm. it's a repetition which is really detrimental mm. yeah i've heard that many times with um ufc fighters um it, it, and this is obviously apparent in boxes as well most of the damage that gets done is not in the fight itself mm. it's it's the preparation yeah. leading up to the fight and sometimes people get knocked out and concussed and they might take one or two days off and they have to come back to training and get hit in the head again mm -hmm. and again <laughs> so tell me your bjj so, yeah, the idea was then what with BJJ? Because actually, you could see that as a kind of a conditioning. Because th there is, it's another slant of research, but there is some excitement about the ischemia preconditioning. So the argument is. Can you just tell us what yep. ischemia is? So ischemia is basically when you occlude a blood vessel and you limit blood flow towards that tissue. So let's say if I were to put a cuff around my forearm mm -hmm. and I inflate it quite quite high with a high pressure, I will stop blood flow towards the extremity, and that's ischemia. Okay. And the problem is, ischemia is one thing, but the reperfusion, the stress when you release the cuff and the blood rushes back towards the extremity, is just as detrimental as the phase during which you don't have oxygen. Really? And that's why when you think about, we were talking about stroke before, that's exactly what happens during a stroke, or that's what happens during some surgical interventions. So when you have, for example, a, a carotid endarterectomy, as it's called, so when they cut your neck open to clean all the junk in the carotid, in the carotid when you had a small stroke or just a, a, a transient ischemic attack, as it's called, TIA, that's exactly what they do. Usually they put a shunt around, mm. but technically, when you that's exactly what happens. And that's detrimental. Why is it detrimental? Um, because of the stress that the reperfusion induces against the walls of the arteries. So it will trigger, so when the blood reflows, you will have a big surge of blood pushing against the walls and that is stressing the walls and inducing the release of oxidative stress, okay. which is damaging the blood vessels. Cells, yeah. And then again, we are talking about the vasoconstriction, vasodilation. They become, instead of being very flexible, they mm. become more quite rigid. Hard. Okay. And so the idea is before some surgery, people are actually suggesting that you want to do some cycles of ischemia reperfusion as a training. Some, cy some cycles, so you train, oh, you, some cycles. you okay, go yep. through the cuff, cuff up, cuff down, cuff up, cuff down, in order to get trained and prepare your vascular bed to be ready for the, the insult. Mm. And that's where the idea of the BJJ came from, because as you said, you know, you basically, you're, you're being choked for a living, pretty much, you know, that's yep. part of the daily routine. Oh, yeah. And we saw the artist guys at an advantage because they're quite fit, and then they do that, which could give them an advantage. And we will have to come back in a year or two because we haven't analyzed the data yet. 
<laughs> but uh, yeah, that's, where, that's the last study I did before leaving the UK about two years ago. I'm actually, it's on my board, BJJ FMD. Oh, yes, it is. Uh, too. It's on my list of things to do. Oh, wow. That is fascinating. One question. Um, and this is a conversation that I've had with other BJJ guys. Um, and, and you kind of, I'm curious if this is the case. So that, that release of the, the, the pressure um, where the blood goes back into that limb or wherever it's going, that in itself um, is detrimental because of the stress that it causes on the blood vessels. What about BJJ guys that get choked? Aren't the blood vessels in the brain being stressed over and over again? Possibly. Possibly. Again, we don't really know because I don't think there's been any work done with BJJ. But possibly. But I mean, technically, the idea is you should tap before you go off with BJJ. Mm. And you actually get better at it at feeling when you're going to oh, yeah. disappear once you've been choked a good few times. Mm. So there is an argument that, again, the beginners are probably at a greater risk than the more advanced people, mm -hmm. but you have to go through the beginner stage to before you are able advanced. to tap soon enough and you don't pass out. Yeah. But also I find that um, beginners, and this is anecdotal, but this is something I find, people who don't train BJJ pass out quicker than people who train BJJ. Yeah, you're, you're learning how to cope with this oxygen. So again, it's a training, it's a stimulus. <sighs> and that's, I think that's part of the techniques to be able to withhold the choke for longer before having to tap so that it gives you a greater chance of Escaping it. Oh, uh, yeah. You try to buy as much as time as you yeah. can. And sometimes as you're going... <laughs> as you think about it, what should I do next? That's, that's happened to me a few times, actually. How about fainting? <laughs> yeah, you can't stop. No. <laughs> but it's, it's a weird sensation. Wow, that's so cool, man. Wow, you're doing BJJ as well. Yeah, we used to do that. Yeah, And it's, again, it's, it's all coming from the clinical research. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about some of some of the other research that you do, um, because um, I want to talk about specifically what you uh, were giving the speech about during the three MT or five MT for academics. Five yeah. MT, yeah. So, uh, so that's a new new hobby of mine, I would say. Uh, I didn't do. We did a little bit of obesity work when I was in the UK, but not much really. And here it's really by by luck meeting people that I went into a diabetes population simply because we were sharing equipment with people from podiatry and we started to talk about research ideas and etc. And, and then I went to visit a colleague in Canada last year and we they had a journal club and we, the, one of the guys presented a paper about this heat therapy that I talked about. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, how about doing that, combining that with diabetes? So when I came back, I had a chat with the guys and said, oh, why don't we do that? And the idea is, so the heat therapy is a very posh word for basically saying you're taking a foot bath. <laughs> that's, that's really, <laughs> in a sense, that's what it is. Yeah. So you put your feet in a hot bath. You can Im immerse as much as you want. Some studies are doing up to mid-size. Some are doing literally just below the knee. doesn't really matter. But the idea is the heat stimulus is actually opening up your blood vessels. So they're vasodilating which is improving all the reactivity of the blood vessels, So they are responding more to challenges. So when we're talking about the CO2, the less of decrease in CO2, which makes your vasoconstrict, mm. they would respond to these stimuli mm. a lot faster, mm. which makes your vasculature much more able to adapt to stimuli. Mm. Again, when we're saying you stand up, you have that black curtain. If your blood vessels are quite reactive, in theory, you should not have that as much. Mm. And in the case, so that's the... the 
the idea behind that technique. And the way I want to apply it with diabetes is simply that patients with diabetes tend to have ulcers that are recurring. Mm. And one of the problems is their arteries are actually rock solid and they can't bring oxygen to the site of the wound to contribute to healing. And that's why they stay open for a very long time yeah. and they tend to come back. And the idea is... Okay. And those ulcers are, tend to be in the periphery of the body yes. more than... And that, that's because blood is harder to get to those areas. Yes, they have uh, what's called peripheral arterial disease. So instead of having really heart issues, it's going to be more towards the periphery, the extremities. And uh, yes, that's typical of diabetes. So the, the, the vasculature of the lower limb is, uh, is quite poor, usually. And the, ten, the ulcers are most of the time on the feet. Uh, usually towards the sole of the feet, of the foot, sorry. And um, yeah, the idea is to see if we could use this heat exposure to open up the blood vessels and facilitate the oxygen delivery towards the site of the wound and mm. contribute to healing. Mm, that's fascinating. And, and speed up the process. And again, hopefully, so the first step, because it's a look and see, it's never been done before. Mm. The first step is to see the effect of an acute exposure. So it's just a one-off 45 minutes in a hot bath is it improving the vasculature in this particular population which is diseased? First step. Then the second study that we have planned is, is the wound healing itself improving that? Or is it just, you know, when you have, because the, the best practice is you go to see your, you, you visit the clinic on a weekly basis and they just do treatment to the wound, trying to contribute to it closing down. Mm -hmm. But is it just taking care of the wound or does it have beneficial effects on the whole vasculature? And the wound is just kind of a, an external marker, an external sign of the vasculature improving. Mm. We don't really know. So, so yeah. just to clarify, so you're looking at how heat is involved in that, uh, in the rigidity of, of the blood yeah. vessels. And one way you'd know that it's helping is by helping heal the wound. But you're asking the question, is it just limited to that wound or is the heat going to yeah. benefit the, the, the vascular system in, in more general terms? Yeah. So th there are different levels and different approaches and hopefully I'll be able to tackle them all in, in the future. So that's n number one. Second one, because we have access to the clinic where the patients are followed up until the wound heals, so I want to repeat the same test afterwards to see if, again, wound healing is helping the overall vasculature. Mm. But then, as you were saying, the idea is heat, heat exposure contributing to the wound healing. So the, the third study, that's probably a PhD studentship in there, <laughs> would be to actually have repeated exposures. Let's say every day for 45 minutes, you bath your foot in hot water, and does that speed up the process? Or does mm. that improve the recurrence, i.e. Mm. decrease the recurrence, or things like that? So that's uh, that's a third project further down down the line. So so you also similar to how you did your PhD. Are you also trying to develop a protocol that would be optimum for for that patients? That would be the idea. Yeah. At the minute, the literature uses forty five minutes at about forty two degrees. Mm. So I'm not sure exactly what's the reasoning behind it. You know, I've never seen in papers a, a clear explanation of that's the most efficient or what. I suppose it's a compromise between it has been proven to be efficient and it's not too taxing in terms of the time for the participants. So that's probably a happy medium. But then do you need to do that every day if you're a diabetic patient? Mm. Or can you do just when you have a when you have an ulcer or we don't know. It's um it's still open. What would be a, 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 let's just say you 
in the future you develop a, a really nice protocol what would be the advantage of that compared to what is uh, typically available for patients who have ulcers i think the big advantage is it's very cheap you know you're literally talking about 200 bucks for and you could actually that's if you buy a posh one which has a thermostat and etc but you mm. could have a bucket with tap water yeah that, that, that can be very cheap so that means that you can scale it up and that can positively affect thousands and millions of patients worldwide so that's that's a big big plus so you could potentially modify practice and that could become part of the usual care of the of the patients and you're not introducing any drugs no nope. it's all all told clear nothing wrong with the, yeah. the international olympic committee or yeah. anything like that <laughs> nothing like yeah, exactly no, right uh, yeah. yeah no it is uh, it is good because one of the other options that we have and another work we've been doing uh recently is uh, the use of the use of hyperoxia so i've been doing it as we've discussed a lot of work on hypoxia yep. but the exact opposite is hyperoxia so you force more oxygen into the system mm. so similar idea they go into closed box boxes really in which you increase the pressure and you're forcing oxygen to the system and the reasoning behind it is exactly the same you force so much oxygen that the body has to take more on board and deliver more to the tissues and that's meant to contribute to healing the problem is it's very expensive Hmm. So it will never be available to the majority of patients. Can I can I suggest something that I've heard of uh, a similar way of producing uh, hyperoxia? Have you heard of Wim Hof? No. Nope. Wim Hof uh, breathing method. So he he goes he does it as a as a and I can forward you uh, some study actually. He uses this. It's been shown in at least one study that I'm aware of. I have to really look at the validity of that. But from what I understand and from the reaction that I have seen from a lot of athletes use his method um they they see a lot a lot of benefits in fact he's the one i think he climbed mount everest with shorts on they call him the ice man ah. have you heard of him before yes. yeah I, I, supposedly he taught a, a group of 10 to 12 participants how to control their breathing there's some mechanism underlying mechanism that i don't understand or hasn't been clearly explained but they were able to control their immune response through their breathing and the breathing technique is um really deep breaths uh it's almost like you're hyper oxygenating your blood so <laughs> you do that 30 times and then you go through a cycle of doing that and then holding your breath for i don't know a minute or something and then doing that over and over again in fact this is a technique that our coach uses just for meditation and it's it's a weird sensation um I can't really explain it to you because it feels like you're on drugs okay. when you, when you do it. It's uh it's really fascinating, but it's it's definitely hyperoxia because you're just overloading overloading your system. So could you see something like that instead of some expensive equipment where uh, patients can go through a protocol, let's say a ten minute breathing thing that hyperexposed or that you know loads mm -hmm. their blood with way more oxygen than um than normal and that would be a, a cheaper way of doing it than to have a ten thousand twenty thousand dollar equipment door for you yeah you yeah, wish it was twenty thousand oh 20 million yeah you're probably adding a couple of zeros but Shit. <laughs> <laughs> but uh i mean it, it's a good idea it's wor worth exploring i'm not sure you will ever reach the same levels of as hyperoxia because they're really able to boost the so usually you have about 100, uh, 100 millimeters of mercury of pressure of oxygen in the blood. Mm -hmm. With hyperoxia, you're talking about four or five times that at least. Oh, wow. So it is a, it is a significant stimulus. 
and I don't think you could be able to reach these levels with just breathing techniques. Uh. But that being said, again, as you were saying, if it's a lot cheaper, if anybody can do it at home, yeah, well, that might be more sustainable. And again, you can reach more people. So altogether, it can be more beneficial, even if individually the effect of the two hours, you know, if you do two hours a week, or you do actually two hours a day for usually 30 sessions, mm. as opposed to something you can do every day for the rest of your life, mm. it could be more beneficial, even if the individual effect is, uh, is less acutely. It's, yeah. So yeah, that's definitely something worth uh, looking at, yeah. That's a, a research project. Here we go, <laughs> another one for the board. <laughs> Wim Hof reading. <laughs> you should check him out. He's yeah, a fascinating guy. He he um I think he, I don't know how many like the distance maybe it was like fifty meters or something under the ice. He made a hole, jumped underneath the ice, doing this breathing technique so he's got more oxygen so he can go on longer. And he has to come out from another hole that's like in a lake and he swam too far because his eyes were frozen from the frozen water. Oh man, I got so like as you were saying this, or I'm like chills thinking about it. Yeah, <laughs> you're crazy doing that. Apparently, he went like he's calculating in his head. Okay, I'm this many feet away, and then he feels like oh that's too much. He's like shit. What do I do? So he swings back like 20, 30 feet back, and then finds the hole. So they usually dive with a line exactly for that reason to make sure they can't find their way out. This guy is that's, crazy, and yeah, he's, a bit, yeah. he's got a very interesting story. Um, uh, so Wim Hof, uh, for the guys who are watching or listening as well, you should check it out. It's actually interesting. Uh, um, we're reaching that an hour. Oh, already? Yeah, time flies. Time flies when you're in fun. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, and I've had fun in this conversation. Uh, two questions or three questions that I always like asking um, my guests and let's start with what are some lessons that you've learned in your life that you can pass on to people coming up from you mean the scientific point of view from any any point of view that could help people coming up I think one of the big things for me was to do what I like you know it's a bit cliche but if you do what you love you don't feel like working and I have to confess that 10 years in academia I feel like working more and more and I have a bit less fun but I really started on a very high and really enjoyed what I was doing for years and that was that was great and you know and just enjoy your years as a student you probably think oh it's dreadful I don't have money I have these headlines believe me that is a good time <laughs> so I really make the most of it and for me it was it was superb you know I enjoyed what I was doing I was doing just what I wanted when I wanted I could get some money to go to conferences, to travel here, there. I mean, during my PhD, I went to I went to the Himalayas, to Tibet. I went to South America. Wow. I went to Spain. You know, since I left France, I lived in Canada. I lived in the UK. I'm now in Oz. It's a great vehicle to do fun things. And really, I think a good take-home is try to enjoy it as much as you can. So there are, and there might be some decisions to make at some point. You know, do I really like that subject? Do I really like that guy I'm working with? Because that's important. And, you know, do I need to sacrifice a few things and maybe move and explore the big world? But, yeah, enjoying it, I think, is a, is a big, big part of it, mm -hmm. yeah. So, yeah, I've heard that before, and I think... <laughs> I, I've, oh, yeah, that's yeah, a very, very cliche. Yeah. <laughs> it's a cliche, but it's, it's a... It's a real one. <laughs> it's, a, it's a real one. It's, I mean it. Yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, I, I I completely agree with you. And I agree with you that a student life is a good life because not many responsibilities right now. We can be selfish with our time. There's not a lot of consideration. I don't have a family. To, I do have a family, but I don't have wife and kids that I have to Hopefully feed. Hopefully no mortgage. Sorry? No mortgage yet. No. <laughs> that's something I... I Enjoy when it lasts. <laughs> yeah. No, that's something I realized early on. I said, yeah, yeah like that. Is, is something that will nail you down to a certain spot yeah. and i like to travel and I, I get the sense that you like to travel because you have traveled many places so i got to do all that before i nail myself mm. to yep to the to the cross postdoc is a good way to do that <laughs> yeah yeah i hear two three yeah. years every postdoc get to travel a few different countries learn a yeah. bunch of stuff it's a great experience you usually have a bit more money you still don't have much more responsibilities you explore something else I think it's a good experience to get, yeah. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward to uh, not being poor and uh, having very little responsibilities and yet the money, you know, so uh, some money. Sounds like dream. Yeah. Maybe it should be a postdoc for life. <laughs> <laughs> some people are running away from that insecurity. I'm running towards yeah, it. Yeah, I know some people who actually have never, never strived to get a, a full-time position and they're just going from contract to contract. Yeah. You have some other downsides, but... Uh, yeah, you have maximum flexibility. Yeah. If you don't like it, you move on. Exactly right. So that's what I'm hoping to do. Until I, I settle down and have kids and family, then I have to look for something more stable and perhaps uh, move away from uh, uh, postdocs and into podcasting. Maybe that <laughs> <laughs> make that work. Um, last two questions. Um, looking into the future, what are you like afraid of? Uh, what do you what fe- what what scares you? And this can be in whatever context. It can be career-wise, anything. Uh, again, I think career-wise, it's uh, it's really the, the disengagement of governments across the world into research. Because it, it is, again, cliche, but as far as I'm concerned, universities should be an investment. Mm. You know, yes, it is costing money to, to teach students, to train students, and etc. But yet you're training the next generation, which is going to generate the wealth of the country mm. and if you don't do that yeah well your country is going to fall behind 20 years down the down the line and that's my biggest concern at the minute it, just in general and again it's not specific to western sydney or new south wales or australia i've seen exactly the same thing happening in the uk and everywhere you know the fees are going up you have less and less money you're sacking people and etc mm. and i personally think it's a mistake i'm definitely biased of course but I genuinely think, you know, you're, all these politicians were in where they are at the minute. They were in your shoes 20 years ago or 30 years ago. And they got free education. And they got free education, yeah. So Completely free. So no it hex. is, um, you know, I'm coming from France. My most expensive year at the end of my PhD was something like $600. What? Of fees for the whole year. And that was by far, it's probably more expensive now, of course, yeah. because everything has, incre- has increased. But, you know, here you're talking about what you pay for a unit is probably more than what they would pay it's a thousand dollars a year yeah a unit in undergrad yeah. it can be so you know and then a lot of a lot more people have access to education mm. and the opportunities are just all of a sudden exploding for you yeah so that, that's probably my, my biggest concern at the minute outside of a third world war yeah no <laughs> <laughs> i agree with you i think education and healthcare these are things that as a society we should put extra care and attention towards because it's not that your people are going to take advantage of those systems sure you'll have like you always you'll do. always have that 
But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't provide those services for people who need it. In fact, I think there's some research, and I've been hearing more and more about this, about a, a, a just a base income as being the best way to to mm. to to address many issues in our society, to address poverty, inequality. Just give people money because they know what to do with it. Don't enforce your what you think they should do with it. They're talking about that in France at the minute. And actually, all the lecturers are... They're not exactly the same thing, but what you do when you get a, a lectureship position in France, you you have your job for life. Oh. You simply can't be sacked. So you're working for the government, and as a government employee, mm. you, you just you're, you're there for life. Right. And generally, and so the many administrative people are like that, uh, and all the teachers, so from primary school to higher education. And I would genuinely go as far as saying that. Even if you were to rape one of your pupils, I'm not even sure you would get sacked. You would probably be sidelined after your time in jail, obviously. But, you know, I'm not sure you would be... I'm probably making it up a little bit, but you see, you really have to push the system to to really be sacked. And that was the idea originally, to give people the freedom of not worrying about their jobs and be able to commit and be fully immersed in it. Mm. As you were saying, you always have a percentage of fraction which is going to take the piece, but they would do in any system anyway. Yeah. But I think it's it's a pretty good system. Yeah. The downside is money is very poor because yeah. <laughs> governments are broke, so yeah. money is not great. But uh, no, but in terms of uh, of research, yeah, you get a job once you have it, you're kind of safe. Wow, that's really it, cool. it is a big peace of mind. That's really cool. Um, the flip side of that question is, uh, what is your aspiration before you leave this world? What do you want to accomplish with yourself? And I know that's a Big question. It's a big question. I mean, if you had asked me a year ago, I would probably have said be a successful scientist. Now that we're about to have a kid, I would say probably be a good dad. <laughs> be quite <laughs> high on the list. Uh, probably be, as we were discussing before we started the podcast, a bit less selfish than uh, than I was few months ago. Um, yeah, I suspect just try to yeah try to be a, you know do my bits and contribute. And if I can instill some fire into some students' belly and so that they can. You know, take over and uh, and keep pushing the science. That's that's even better. Mm. But I think yeah, being a good a good father, a good husband is uh, is quite high on the list. Yeah. yeah, those are good things to aspire to. Again, nothing nothing original here. Yeah, but <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> no, but it's it's good. You're totally right. I think as human beings, when you have a kid, that's the biggest project in your life. Because if that kid turns out to be screwed, whose fault is it? It's yours and by raising a shitty kid, you've kind of degraded society because if everybody raised shitty kids, we're going to have a shitty society. society. (laughs) So this is probably the most important thing you can do. Again, to some extent, we're going back to education. Yeah. Oh, yeah. On a different level, but uh, same kind of principle. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, that that is like the most important type of education. Mm, By far, yeah. Yeah, raising good human beings. Cool. Thank you so much for your time, Julian. Pleasure. Thanks. Enjoyed this immensely. That was great, actually. Yeah, cool. <laughs> I didn't know what to think of a podcast first time, but that was good. Yeah, awesome. I'm glad you enjoyed it too. Cool. We'll see you guys next week. Cheers. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, my lips are very dry. The wind yesterday. Uh, you're gonna blame the dryness of your lips on the wind now? Yeah. <laughs> what else could it be? I don't know, right? You, you tell me. It's your lips. God knows what you do with your lips. And uh, by God, I mean an entity that you don't believe in, Alex. <laughs> I like how you asked him 
Is it recording audio? <laughs> yes. In audacity? Yes. I like how you asked uh, Julian, why would it be designed like that? And he's just thinking, <laughs> it's not designed, you idiot. I don't know what he's thinking. Yeah, right? I don't know what he's thinking either, but I, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> it is. It is a shitty design. It's because it's not designed. Bro, <laughs> what are you laughing about? It is. It's designed through natural selection. Yeah, well, that's one way yeah, to look yeah, at it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but uh, it is, man. I can't believe that our brains uh, can't hold on to oxygen at all. Yeah. That's so strange. Yeah, yeah. There it's was a, lots of really cool facts I learned yeah. in that one. Muscle, muscle, you can. So muscle has myoglobin, so which that's the, it's like hemoglobin, um, but in your muscle cells that store oxygen, um, but your brain, not so much. No. Huh. Yeah. As soon as as soon as oxygen. And that's why you said it gives you what, like four seconds, six seconds, and then you're out once yeah. your brain. I think it's less than that if if you choke a person who's got no brazilian jiu-jitsu training or someone who's not used to getting choked so for the freaks out there you might have some resistance here but usually yeah it's like two three seconds if that um but uh once you train your neck and um you've been getting choked on a regular basis uh, hashtag freak time uh then it, it's harder to actually choke you out so uh, i've been caught in situations where i'm about to see like the, the elevator doors just close on my consciousness and i'm fighting like a re-naked choke um should we show them what a re-naked choke is for the guys who are actually watching so what you uh, do great. okay let me show you what a re-naked choke is oh um alex is gonna cop it uh, do I have to stand up? No, no, you good. Sit down. So what you do is you put one arm underneath like this. You grab your own bicep, and this hand goes behind. Now I'm just gonna choke Alex for like half a second, and you tell me what it feels like. This shouldn't uh, constrict your airways, but rather your blood. So, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's fun, huh? Yeah, yeah, real fun. <laughs> if you hold on to that for like two, three seconds, and then you just. You, it's like the elevator, elevator door is just closed. But what's weird is that, like, I've been doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for about four and a half years now. I started February 2012. And uh, now, like, you, you can actually see that. Uh, you can't literally see it, but you, you get a good sense of when you're about to pass out. And so it's like it happens in slow motion or something? Is that what you mean? Or It just, you feel yourself leaving your body. Yeah. And, and like, it's like... It's like the elevator doors. It just gets darker and darker, and then you just... I guess the more that you, like, perceive that kind of... The more you experience that little moment, the more you can, ex like, expect what's going to happen. So mm. it happens slower, or your, yeah. your perception of it is, sure. is better. That's definitely part of it, but I think um, just physiologically... And this is something I didn't even know, but supposedly, uh, when you do get choked... It helps, you know, he, he gave that example about the periphery in the arm. So if you if you cut the blood supply and let it go, you know, when you get your heart, yeah. uh, uh, blood pressure um, uh, monitored, actually the, the, the flow of the blood back into the vessels, there's so much pressure that it causes damage to, to the walls of the blood vessels. Yeah, yeah. We think 
of our bodies as like these soft things there's not a lot of pressure not a lot of force but in fact when you this i would actually recommend everyone out there to to look at the blood flow i think mark jones our lecturer showed us a video of how fast the blood actually travels oh yeah and so what he did i think he showed us a video of um the script i forget where they were from but essentially they, they had attached a camera and they were like um arteries and veins running across in the field of view and they could literally slow down the the flow of the blood because they'll pinch the blood vessels and you can you could see without like when it's running normally like the blood is the blood red blood cells are traveling so fast that you can't even make out that there's any blood yeah but yeah. as soon as it slows down and then you realize oh the blood is so incredibly um, crowded and there's so much friction against like red blood cells against other red blood cells against the wall there's so much force involved yeah, there yeah. that you wouldn't ordinarily um, think about and and when you take away so if you if you if you, if you stop the blood pumping into a limb and then you remove that pressure all that forces you know yeah it's interesting how Julian was saying that it actually can be worse than the, the constriction itself yeah that's, yeah. and, and one of the ways you overcome it is by repeatedly uh, preventing or putting pressure and releasing it uh, putting down pressure and releasing it and this is something we do in Jiu Jitsu yeah. so that, that choke you just experienced like over the past four and a half years I've probably experienced it hundreds if mm. not a thousand times getting choked and getting out getting choked and passing out getting choked and you know you do yeah, that every yeah. day until like getting choked and people playing with like doing this none of this shit bothers me anymore yeah because I've, I've had that I've had people's knees on my on my throat on my face I've yeah, had yeah. shin on my, on my throat <laughs> you know what I mean? like, it doesn't bother me whatsoever anymore yeah yeah. but it's amazing how your body can yeah, get conditioned it, yeah oh, that's what I was just about to say it's all about that conditioning isn't it um, I thought He's he's obviously uh, a physiologist, and I, I thought maybe we, we could talk about physiology as a subject. Did you did you do physiology in your undergrad? I did one unit, and that's why I, when you was talking about the chemo senses, oh, I muted this. When you was talking about the chemo senses, uh, I knew exactly what he was talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. Did you? Yeah, yeah. I did it as well, and I kind of picked it as an elective, and I didn't really want to do it. I'm like, oh, what is this? I'm not going to enjoy it. I'm just going to have to like do it because it's kind of all that's there, and get it out of the way. Then I actually really enjoyed it. I thought it was fascinating. Yeah. You, you learned some cool shit in that unit. I mm. we learned about all the different systems and uh, all of all of the labs, all the testing we did on ourselves, which is what I really liked about it as well. It's like you can perform these experiments like on yourself by measuring your blood pressure and then running and measuring it again and this type of stuff. And didn't we didn't didn't like students have to bring in like piss? Yeah, yeah. I think there was one oh, where we uh, it, it smelled was really pissy, bro. Like drinking, drinking water, drinking nothing, and drinking coke, and How then drink measuring nothing? like a volume of urine that got expelled over ah, the course of a lab class. Right. And like, it's, no, it's really interesting. It's fascinating. Yeah. So I, I really like that that part of it. Um. I. He was talking a lot of. You guys had a, a big conversation about uh, doping in sport. Mm. And I thought that's a really interesting kind of can of worms that we should get into. Oh, definitely, because uh, this is something that I'm, I, I follow actually um, uh, quite closely because I'm a big fan of mixed martial arts and the UFC. And uh, only a few years ago, the UFC, um, for the folks who don't know who that is, what that is, it's the Ultimate Fighting Championship. It's a it's an organization where um, people essentially 
it's it's it use utilize all sorts of martial arts whether it's wrestling it's jiu-jitsu uh muay thai kickboxing boxing taekwondo all of those are put together um and they fight but it's it's interesting because what we would see is that these killers from like the 2000s early 2000s um like Vitor belfort was like they he was like a monster he was about uh, at one stage he weighed uh, he fought in heavyweight he fought in light heavyweight and then middleweight um so these are you can you can think of them like from heavyweight to light heavyweight there's about 20 kilo difference and then from then on it's about five to ten yeah. kilo difference so it's a huge weight disparity and, and he was accomplishing it by um taking uh, obviously steroids yeah and a lot of people used to take steroids in the ufc in many many combat sports until they had the um usada so um the guy who caught this this is interesting the guy who caught lance armstrong is the guy who the ufc hired Ah, to do nice. the to do the drug yeah, testing. he made a name for himself then. oh yeah, yeah yeah that's that's one of the reasons why he went after him um yeah. in fact there's uh people call him the golden snitch yeah it was after the fact but um so they've put in these really um uh really uh precise and accurate tests in fact they 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 store your urine for like years after your urine and blood years after the date of collection so that they could test it against yeah. other assays other tests that they may have developed um tests that may not be available uh right now to test for certain compounds because this this cave uh, cat and mouse um chasing game going on you know the 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 athletes are developing yeah. new ways of of hiding it and of then, hiding yeah. it so they keep they store it they store all the the urine or whatever all their samples and then later when the technology is caught up they can go back and rematch and right. catch it yeah because yeah. it, it could be like a a, a, a close analog hmm. to to a hormone or a compound that is performance enhancing now but we just don't have the test for it and yeah. and in five ten years we might develop that test and say oh you're a cheat um i think what's really interesting though is like where do you draw the line on doping like maybe we could have that conversation because um this is something that i think you guys touched on briefly but didn't really go into it like right. like what's considered doping and, and what isn't dude and what's going to happen and, in the yeah. future when we have gene doping man um, yeah so right now uh, and just to go back to to what i was saying earlier so uh what happened with a lot of these athletes was um a lot of them had this really amazing physiques and then when usada came in all all of a sudden like a bunch <laughs> of people started getting skinny yeah, you know yeah. I mean? and their performance suffered but your point you know it, it's a great question what what happens um what is considered doping like for me i don't know i reckon because there's, there's a whole lot of things that can enhance performance, right? And you, you kind of, like, someone who's in sport um, wants to enhance their performance in any way they can, like training, you know, eating properly, all that type of stuff, uh, having sports scientists help them out. All of these types of things enhance their performance. Um, but then why do, we, why do we have a problem with doping? And mm -hmm. I reckon the reason is it's got to be because you don't want that to become the norm in some in something like sport because it discriminates against people who don't want to do that to their body right so maybe the line is what harms your body 
for doping. But I don't think that's a good line because athletes will do any. Yeah, they'll, they'll still do. I'm just no, saying, no, where, what do we, when do we draw that line? I don't, I don't even yeah. mean, I don't even, because athletes might do every, like, let's take away the drugs, yeah? Yeah. Um, they will train harder than the other person. Yeah. And they'll, they'll get, like, uh, fatigue. Um, yeah, that's fair enough. Things like that, you know what I mean? They'll eat things yeah. that other people aren't willing to eat. So you, if you draw the line between compounds that you can take, you know, exter- the ex- exogenously I think is the word yeah um, it, it, that's an arbitrary line it is and it also doesn't include their own blood and things like this yeah, w- which w- you would consider as doping as, as, as doping. well it's so tricky because supplements I mean what what is what is considered doping is it you reach a line where people just it's not fair because other people can't access it yeah but yeah but that's what i think that. but no but not only that but i think if other people if other people were to access it would cause them actual physiological harm but what then if you could do it? then you can't have that expectation that everybody who wants to be a 100 meter sprinter sure. or something has to take x drug or they won't be able to make it and if they take x drug they're going to die at 50 you know what i mean that's yeah, not sure. fair okay um so that's where that's why x drug would be doping in that instance Whereas somebody who says just trains a little bit harder, it's not necessarily, you know, everyone could just train a bit harder. Yeah, but could so, you could you afford a nutritionist? Could you afford like rare supplements? Yeah, that well, no that's one interesting. Else has so is the economic? You know, if if you're an athlete uh, from a very rich country that puts a lot of money into sport, you're at an advantage over somebody who isn't. You know, so do we? But what about genetic differences? Um, you know, like it's the sports aren't fair, dude. That's the thing. Yeah, yeah, and, but and yeah, but that's why it's interesting. So you go, but that's why it's an interesting discussion because, yeah, sports aren't fair. You're exactly right. Sports aren't fair. Not everybody is on an equal playing it's field in white. sport. Yeah. So, but then, but then, why do we have this rule against which I support? By the way, I don't think whether people should be able to to dope and things and take performance enhancing drugs. I, I I think that should be wrong, right? But um, but I find it it's a hard one to justify, like because you're right sport isn't fair so where do you try and draw that line maybe, you know where do you draw that line maybe, to make the decision yeah maybe an argument could be made that kids coming up that that's where the danger is you know if kids have to jab, you don't want to encourage harm you know what i mean like yeah. you don't want to encourage taking steroids because they if, have all these side effects that are negative sure i make you great at sport sure. this particular sport sure. but they have all these other negative side effects and we don't want people we don't want our best athletes to have to have this drug with all these side effects yeah but you, you so we you, say call it doping yeah but you, you you want your athletes to go rigorous training blow out their knees blow out their backs that's okay but as soon as it comes to drugs that you put in your body and in fact i don't think that steroid juice like if you use it moderately and carefully it's not as as bad as people make it out to be possibly yeah, you know because know, it's one of those that. things that i think that's stigmatized outside mm. of sports i think uh like steroids and things like that i mean people use it for all sorts of like beneficial, uh, like yeah, th- yeah. testosterone, oh, yeah, testosterone yeah, replacement therapy. Yeah. Like when I hit 40, like my testosterone levels obviously is going to be lower than it is now. Mm. Guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to be on TRT, dude. I want to feel like I'm 30 something <laughs> till I'm 70. Yeah. I'm going to be on like not crazy doses because that's what, uh, that's what's unhealthy. Yeah. Like, yeah. But, but then, but then, so where, so you're, so you, you're 
saying that we shouldn't necessarily have rules against doping? Would that be your position then? Sounds like that's where you're headed. Sounds like you're saying that people should be able to take any performance enhancer they want and compete. To be honest, they should. My only concern is about kids. But if if, if we, the only problem is like where does take that, away the what's kids? the end what's the end goal with that? Like like look forward. Like let's say we make that rule tomorrow. Where do sports end up? And this would be basically every sport. It'll end up with people Being to be honest. an athlete. No, to be an yeah maybe yeah probably. But to be an athlete then at that level, you'll be sending a message that people have to take all of these but drugs which have side know. effects. But people already know. You know the Tour de France. I mentioned yeah. this to him. The experts have made the but it argument, could be worse in some sports no no but the, experts, have, experts have made this argument that it's actually safer to be on performance enhancing drugs and do the tour of the fronts than to be offered because it, it, your body can recover better you you can handle the stress more yeah, when you're on yeah. steroids on performance enhancing drugs than when you're not so it's actually safer to do that sport like that yeah um my uh, the only argument that that would be is is just for the kids i suppose that's the only thing that because you don't want to yeah outside of that i mean the future itself is going towards that like direction. if something benefits if something benefits you like actually benefits you i don't have a problem with sports people doing it you know like they have an ice bath after they come off the field because it helps their recovery whatever i don't even and i don't care if it's chemical either to be honest you know mm. if, if something benefits them help their health yeah uh i don't have a problem with people doing that i wouldn't call that doping but that's where i draw that line that's why i think that's a a kind well, of what's a good the whole line. point of doping? The doping is to improve. To, to improve, but there's lots of ways that you can improve. You some can of those ways are, uh, align with positive health outcomes, sure. and some of those don't. And that's where I think that line should be, right? But okay, but then you imagine the logistics of this. You're trying to test someone for doping. You'd have to look at their whole. Yeah, it might not always. History. It might Do you not. Know what I mean, you have to look at their medical clear. records to see if they've. Oh no, no, they, not per person. I just mean in general, you know. But you have to enforce it per person. Yeah, yeah. If the, you, so you, I'm just saying you have a whole lot of procedures that are performance enhancing and the ones that you deem are illegal should be the ones that we that well, have what a if, negative what effect. If you could do it's not always going to be clear sure. cut. I'm granted there'll be, there'll be these cases where we don't know the science isn't there and stuff. Sure, but what if you have like uh, performance enhancing drugs that with moderation can be very beneficial? Yeah, but well, if they're beneficial for your health and they make you go better at sport, I don't have a problem so them te- steroids, EPO, things of this nature. As well, long as it's know. done, and moderation. Just like how Julian did the altitude training and optimized the yeah. protocol. What if there was but, research like that done? No, but it's not. It's not like I think you're confusing two things. If it, it's not, um, uh, it'll be in like used in moderation. I mean, like beneficial for the health overall. Like not just benef- not just okay. Like they can do it safely and make them better at the sport. No, no, overall, you know? yeah, 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 yeah. But okay, like, maybe could, there should be limits on how much people can train. For instance, no, if 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 it's deemed that training too much can that's hurt stupid, you, right? you know? that's a that's a nanny statement. Uh, but, but I think I think the type of thing is that people aren't going to train too much anyway, because when you train too much, it's bad for the sport performance. So yeah, they but, always but, but I was just going to say, no, athletes have have a crazy tendency to take it to the nth degree, bro. Yeah. You, and I can just I'm I'm no professional athlete at all. Far from it. But I've I've been obsessed to the point where all I've wanted to do was train. And and I've and I've done jujitsu like mm. seven days a week, sometimes two, three times a day, like yeah. twice, three times an exaggeration. But there are times like I'd wake up in the morning, I was exhausted, my whole body was hurting, but then I'd be like, you can't be a bitch, you gotta train. 
you, athletes, imagine that, dude. You've, yeah. You have, you're, there's a goal four years from now or a year from now or there's a fight two months from now. Dude, you're going to call yourself a bitch and say, get up and do the work. You know what I mean? But let, let's... Yeah, no, no, but it, I think that's a very uh, simplistic way of looking it's at not. it. It's not. Because athletes are smart now and they're backed no, by science no. all the time. I think that's, that's naive. Maybe the people. athlete, maybe the athlete wants to like train all the time but the people who have their heads screwed on sure. <laughs> understand that there's a good amount oh, to yeah, train yeah. and sure, there's a good sure, amount to sure, take sure, off sure. and then you sure. eat this much for breakfast yeah. and then like i don't know about the ufc but like other sports are like you know what i mean cricket australia you know what i mean those guys have dietitians sure, sure. Yes. like sports scientists with them every day like it's it's calculated how much they're going to be training and sure, what they're sure. going to be doing and all this stuff yes yeah. no i agree with you um, um let's let's move this conversation to uh something equally trippy and that's gene doping yeah um, yeah have you heard of myostatin inhibitors no so myostatin inhibitor so um apparently there's a gene that gets activated um and what this i think this is involved in in muscle differentiation and i could be wrong but um what happens is if you get a mutation in that and there's whippets you know those dogs yeah whippets have you ever seen one yeah yeah have you seen the big bulky versions of them no <laughs> dude can you google that like literally wait what so do you want me to google just whip it bulky whip it yeah like whip it like like bulky, yoked. bulky whip it. No, no, like yoked rip, whip it. You know, um, let's see. Ripped you, whip it. Whip. Oh my <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's like impossible having a conversation, let alone doing a podcast. Man. Ripped, like, rip whip it. Rip, I better be careful though. Why? I don't know. No, like, like bulky. I don't know. Bulky whip it. Bulky whip it. Uh. Bulky whippet. Anyway, continue your story. Oh, dude, dude, continue at, your story. Look at this. Look at this shit, man. Look, look at this shit. The dog on the right, bro. For shit. the for the folks who who can't see, can you can you see that? Can you, let, let me take it up there. Yeah, let me let me show you guys. Because Alex, no, I'm tripping out. What the hell? Look at that. Oh yeah, yeah. Dude, that is the craziest shit. So what they're doing is, uh, I think what people are doing, and this is, I think, in, happening in China, I believe. Um, people are taking, yeah, don't tip over the camera. <laughs> uh, they're taking myostatin inhibitors, and it apparently just uh, makes you huge. Like it makes you really bulky and strong, mm. um, and I could see this. I mean, in in the future, where uh, gene editing can is so precise and accurate that you just go and they just inject yeah. you with something, and next thing you know, within a month, you have 10, 20 kilos extra muscle. You are you are like three times faster. So is that jump. is that doping? Should that be illegal? That is gene doping. Yeah, dude. yeah. Should and that that's be illegal? Coming, but that's coming up. Yeah, yeah, but. Do you think that should be illegal? Dude, I don't know. Maybe we should have we should have a new league for every sport and just put the X. That's league. what it's almost going to come to, though, because I was thinking this as well. Um, but then that's going to be. It was like it's like uh, the Paralympic Games, right? Like <laughs> no, 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 like <laughs> hear me out, hear me out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Eventually, like 
the like amputee limbs are going to get to a stage and robotics is going to get to a stage and these types of things that humans can like you know lift weights way heavier than a normal human could or run like way faster like you know run the 100 meters in five seconds or something ridiculous yeah just take these huge springing steps or something like that eventually it's going to get to the stage where like paralympians and things like this can do can run faster and run better than uh, people who who are who Dude. don't have those disabilities and the Paralympics and then gonna, they, so then take over the normal yeah, that's Olympics. What I'm saying. But but that gets into this doping discussion then. So when do you call like the when is it an enhancement? And I think it was for this. It might have been the Sydney Olympic Games. Those swimmers had those all-over body suits, and they were like thinking of banning them because they had these swimsuits that went all the way down to here and down to here. Oh, and they were friction. yeah, and they were made so like in a way like a kind of like an F1 car is, you know what I mean? Like, so the water just didn't like touch their bodies. So they were like way faster. And people were going, oh, hang on a minute. Like you can't use this technology. It's like not a real human. Like, but then you get into this big question, like what is a real human? Where do you draw that line? And like, are you going to have, like you said, you'd have to have, you would have to have like different, um, categories for every different person for economic people who are, have less money to spend right. on it people who are this particular height and some of those categories exist in some sports already you know like weight classes and stuff with fighting and those types of things so it, it's, it's I, interesting like i can't imagine a, a time in the ufc where you have like the 205 testosterone replacement therapy champion of the world. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like what the fuck? But, yeah, yeah. What the hell knows? is that nonsense? Yeah. You know, but I... I, t- I think it's, you want to encourage people to do sport because sport is good, right? And, and that's where I get back to this doping thing. Like the things that should be illegal should be the things that would discourage people from doing sport because they're bad for your health in the long term. They're bad for your body, that type of stuff. They should be illegal. Other things I think I'm, I'm cool with because you want to encourage people to yeah, do sport. You, you want to encourage the kid who isn't six foot two to play basketball just because sure, but he, he enjoys it, you know? Sure, but wait, wait, wait. I, I don't get that. I think uh, that doesn't make sense. Just because people at the top are taking steroids and kicking ass doesn't mean that people at the bottom can't enjoy the game because those people are hopefully aren't aspiring to become like the oh, but top athletes. Always, no, but you're always like kids who love playing soccer. You know, they all want to be Ronaldo. You know what I mean? They've all yeah, got that in... But look, man, there's Mike, if it's like there's Mike Tyson. Ronaldo, Michael... If Ronaldo's a like cyborg with like two legs that help him like sprint that's, from that's one end to the other and the kids, the are they going to be as inspired? Yeah, they should chop off their <laughs> legs and start being like cyborg <laughs> legs, dude. That's, that's the way to do it. Right now, man, if I wanted to be like Mike Tyson, I can't be Mike Tyson. I don't have the genetics of that, dude. What difference is it? What difference does it make? I think it's more egalitarian if you chop people's legs off and give them those robotic legs because then it's more equal. You know, like the, the yeah, but then but then those legs are good. Legs will be good for other things, and you want to set it up so the only way you can be good at soccer is if you cut off your legs, which are you good can for be other good, things. No, no, you know no, what I mean? Like, no, you can be good at soccer, but you don't, you can't be great without those robotic legs. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's an interesting discussion. Say. It's it's a hard one to draw a, lines on. It's, it's a, a trip, hard yeah. one to draw distinctions on. And like mm. you say, like you don't want to. You don't want to discourage people from trying and then you want athletes to be able to better themselves as well and those things i don't even get a trade-off i don't know i think we've kind of talked enough we only really talked about one big thing but it was good Shit. yeah yeah i suppose we can call it a week yeah or day or whatever we had the open day yesterday that was fun yeah yeah that was good yeah, yeah. We talked to lots of people yeah, yeah. <laughs> alex was so funny <laughs> alex was but i did some sales 
reps work when I was younger and they the one thing they tell you is whenever you're trying to sell stuff never ask questions just give them direction and say oh that will look great on you try it on you know what I mean do you think that'll look great do you want to try it on that never works you just want to give them instructions and Alex yesterday was you'd like it was so funny like uh, instead of like asking do you guys want an interview oh you'd be great for an interview why don't you get on stage and talk to her I mean, <laughs> yeah dude, you are a genius yeah, I love yeah. it I love I love it was it. good I yeah. handed out a lot of pamphlets too yeah that was fun well that's the type of uh, shit that the audience would be super interested in um, about how many pamphlets Alex gave away yep I didn't even count them but I'll get back to you for next week yeah <laughs> I'll make that happen anyway uh, that's it for this week uh, we have uh, go and like our Facebook page yeah Twitter. give us a review yeah please do it really does help and uh, send us your feedback we'd like to hear that off you and uh, listen to our episodes and refer this to a friend for god's sake i always forget to this yeah, one yeah true. just share this if you like an episode if you think your friend will find a certain episode interesting because of the topic or the or our guest then just share that episode with them and say hey listen to this yeah. if you think that an hour on something is too long share one of our abridged episodes which you yeah. can find through our website blabcodes.com forward slash abridged I don't forget the forward slash it. I, you'll I, find it. Yeah, you'll find it. If you <laughs> can't, .com. If you can't find the bridged episodes, don't listen to us. <laughs> <laughs> no, do, 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 do. do, do. Anyway, <laughs> see you guys. See ya. Thanks for listening to Blab Coats. Rate and review our podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast, because it does help us spread the word. And if you like what we're doing here, then help us grow it by sharing this with a friend, a friend of a friend, or your mailman, even your mailman's mailman. We also want to hear from you, so send us questions or comments to blabquotes at gmail.com. And if you have any interesting questions or comments, then we'll talk about it on air.